So good morning. My name is Jordan Washington. And so if I snubbed a handshake from you this morning, it's uh, not because I don't like you, but I'm dealing with a little bit of sickness here. And so sharing is not always caring. So if I, if I snubbed your handshake, it's, it was for, for your own benefit. Uh, and so uh, I'm Jordan. Uh, I'm part of the Timothy program here at Central Hope, along with Blake Reap getting theological education to uh, be ordained in our denomination. And as always, it is a pleasure and a privilege to get to share God's word with you <clears throat> this morning. And so at the outset, let me say that this is a difficult passage. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll see why this passage becomes more difficult, particularly for us who live in the Western world in the 21st century as we go along. And so let me warn you uh, that I might say something that you disagree with, uh, might even say something that makes you angry with me as an individual. Um, but understand my, my intent is not to cause offense just for the sake of offense, but uh, God's word if you're not skipping over the difficult passages, we'll do that. And so this morning, let me warn you at the outset that that is likely to happen. And so in the back of our minds, let us keep one thing uh, in, in context. Uh, particularly, that is the, the Great Commission, right? So Jesus tells his disciples to go and preach to all the nations and to teach them everything that he had taught. And one of the things that I fear that we forget to teach in our evangelism, in our discipleship, is that the same Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior, also told us that if anyone would come after him, he must deny himself. That if you would save your life, ultimately you would lose your life. And those who lose their life for his sake will ultimately find it. And so keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this passage and as we look at Paul's journey and what is going on in this text. And while our primary text is Acts 21, verses 1 through 14, what we really are going to see is Paul the man living out Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If you have then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so one of the key features of this particular verse is Paul says that Christ is your life. But how often do we, especially in the Western world, find our life in something else? Whether that be career, where we live, where we send our children to school, the successes of our adult children. Whatever the case may be, oftentimes we end up finding our life in something other than Christ. And as we go along, we'll see this is not only against the will of God for our life as disciples, but also does you much harm as you walk in these troublesome days. 
Further, we see Paul living out Philippians 1, 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But again, how many of us in the Western world would not really even be persecuted for Christ, much less die for Christ? How many of us are, are ready to do certain things that go along with our political party, but we will not even invite an unbeliever over to our house for dinner for Christ? We're ready to have a civil war in the name of Jesus, but we're not ready to share the gospel in the name of Jesus. We see in our text a corrective for how many of us live our lives here in America. That is, that while we are believers, we functionally disbelieve the resurrection. And so let us go to the Lord in prayer, and we will dive into our text. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you to give thanks to you for who you are, that you are a great God who is just, righteous, and holy, but also shows mercy and grace to those who fear you. We pray that as we dive into your word and as we see the life of Paul, that we would not shrink back from the call that we have as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we would take encouragement that our inheritance that awaits us is imperishable, that is greater than anything that we could possibly acquire in this life, that even if we possess the whole world, which you have promised for your children, far exceeds anything that we could get here. We pray that your spirit would be with us, that it would convict us where we need conviction, that it would grant comfort and encouragement where we need comfort and encouragement. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. And so the title of this sermon is actually called Free at Last. And you might be familiar with this just because this was uh, the championing phrase for the freed slaves in this country in particular. Uh, but this title was chosen specifically because, as I stated before, when we find our life in things other than Christ, we actually keep ourselves in bondage. We keep ourselves in chains. And the thing that we're going to see from Paul in this text is that Paul is the freest man of all the people that we're going to see in this text. That because of Paul's belief in the resurrection from the dead, Paul is free at last. And so if you have your Bibles or if you use an app on your phone, please turn with me to Acts chapter 21, and we'll begin in verse 1. And we, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. 
Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Syria and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. This is the will of the Lord. So this section opens up with uh, Paul's travels after he leaves the Ephesian elders that uh, Reverend Dan spoke about last week, uh, telling them that they would no longer see his face after he arrived at Jerusalem. So along the way, he finds the disciples in Tyre, and he stays with them for seven days. And at this point, there could be a little bit of confusion about what, what's happening in this particular text. So we see the disciples urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem through the Spirit. And so this has been interpreted by some to mean that the Holy Spirit is somehow contradicting himself, right? Uh, but in context of the broader narrative, uh, what we see happening here is the Holy Spirit reiterating what he stated at the end of chapter 20. And that is that when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, they will never see his face again. And so throughout this entire section, we continually see the prophecy about Paul spoken concerning uh, what will happen to him when he arrives in Jerusalem. Which leads us to our first point. The thing we see from Paul's friends is they urge him not to go to Jerusalem, right? The Holy Spirit has prophesied that Paul will meet a particular fate when he arrives. Paul seems ready to do the will of God, but Paul's friends seem to be against the will of God, which leads us to our first point is why do we fear the will of the Lord? That is the question that we have to ask ourselves. Why do we fear the will of the Lord? It is clear from our text that the disciples and the Ephesian elders have a deep love and affection for Paul, as the church should have a deep love and affection for its leaders and for one another. But the question becomes, when does our love and affection for one another potentially become sinful? When does our love and affection for our parents, our siblings, our children, when do those things potentially get in the way of the will of God? This scene is much like that of Peter and Christ. And so if you're familiar with this particular section, Jesus has prophesied that he's going to go to the cross and die a gruesome death. And Peter, out of love and affection for Jesus, tries to persuade Jesus not to go to the cross. And if you all remember this section, Jesus has a really stern rebuke for Peter. 
He says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Could, could you imagine looking at your friend in the eyes and saying, get behind me, Satan? I mean, that, that is the sternest rebuke that you can possibly offer to a person. And then he continues and says, for you do not have the things of God in mind. But your mind is set on the things of man. And Paul's rebuke to his friends is similar, not quite as stern as Jesus' to Peter's, but it is similar. For he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So why do we fear the will of the Lord? The most obvious and oftentimes cliche answer is that it's the flesh, it's sin, it's the fallen nature. Um, but let's get a little more specific than that. Oftentimes, the reason we fear the will of the Lord is because we have a Kodak picture of what our lives should be like. We have planned out how we want our lives to go. And as cheesy as Hallmark movies are, oftentimes, that is the happy ending that we desire for our own lives, for our siblings, for our parents, for our children. And again, if we're being honest with ourselves, oftentimes this Kodak picture, this Hallmark movie that we think of when we vision our own lives, the will of, the God, the will of God is not present in that picture. And so why do we fear the will of the Lord? It's because oftentimes we don't trust that his will lines up with our will. And if we're being honest, we definitely believe that we can paint a much better picture for our own lives than God can. And so what is the remedy for our fear? What is the remedy for our fear? And as stated before, the remedy comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In a word, our remedy is the grace of of God. The catechism's first question is what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But don't miss the back end of the answer. Right? So a lot of us understand that as disciples, as human beings, we were created to glorify God. But the part that Christians often miss is the back end of the answer, that we are to enjoy God forever. This is what we see from the Apostle Paul. We see a man who's not only striving to glorify God, but also a man who enjoys God. A man who believes deep in his soul that the resurrection of the dead is real. And again, as Christians, we all typically conceptually believe in the resurrection. But functionally, do we go about our day, our weeks, the months, the years, believing that the resurrection from the dead will take place 
and that what Jesus ushers in for his people will be far greater than anything that you could possibly accomplish or acquire or have in this life. That the best Hallmark movie pales in comparison to what Jesus has promised and what Jesus will bring to his people when he returns. Do we believe that as a people? And again, if most of us are being honest with ourselves, the answer would be no. But that is the remedy to our fear, that this world is not our home. We are pilgrims traveling through this life. That however long you live in this world, whether it be 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100, or even if you manage to live as long as some of the Old Testament saints, to be 700 years old, that 700 years is not nearly as long as eternity. However much time you have on this earth, as the Bible says, it's a mist. You try to get a handful of it and it's gone. But eternity, again, it's hard for us to, to really wrap our minds around eternity. Forever is forever. This life is short. It's brief. But Jesus promises that when he returns, he's going to usher in his kingdom, and that kingdom will have no end. That he will reign in righteousness and justice that he is a gracious and merciful God. This is the remedy for our fear, remembering that the resurrection is true, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead already, and we await his return to usher in his kingdom. So in conclusion, let thy will be done as the Lord's Prayer says. As Jesus says before he goes to the cross, he prays and he asks his Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. This is a Christian who is truly set free. Because again, a lot of the things that cause us anguish, a lot of the things that cause us anxiety, a lot of the things that cause us stress, ultimately is a lack of trust that we have a loving Father in heaven. But do you believe that our Heavenly Father, who did not spare his own son, do you believe that he who sacrificed his own son would also not graciously give you all things God does not withhold any good thing from his children. And oftentimes those things are not always what we have in mind for ourselves. But they are for our benefit and they are for our good. To detach us from the love that we have of this life. To make us long for paradise, that celestial shore where there'll be no more crying, no more weeping, no more sacrifice, no more pain, but we will all be at peace. 
So do not fear the will of the Lord, but trust that your heavenly Father is a gracious and merciful God who has your best interest at heart. That the movie that he is writing, the story that is unfolding in real time and real space is better than any Hallmark movie that you've ever seen on Channel 32. <laughs> trust that God loves you and by his grace, take up your cross and deny yourself. Love one another as Jesus has loved you. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Be free at last. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for your word, for the life of the Apostle Paul, that the thing that made Paul special is not Paul himself, but is you. That Paul is just a man, but you are a great God that made Paul great. And the same promises that you gave to Paul are the same promises that are yes and amen for all of your children. Lord, as we go on throughout the rest of our day and as we look forward to another week of our labors, may we continue to have in the forefront of our minds, Lord, that your son is raised from the dead and that he is seated at your right hand and that is where we find our life. That our life is not found in the successes that we accomplish, the successes that our children have, in the place that we live, in the car that we drive, in the salary that we attain but our life is hidden in your son. Lord, we pray and we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.